3.07 on a Friday afternoon. News Talk 1130 WISN. My name is Jerry Bott. This is the aptly titled Friday Afternoon Show. Here uh, leading into Labor Day weekend. Paul, I'm watching um, Fox um, News Channel, uh, Neil Cavuto's show um, in the background. And they're talking about, I didn't realize this. And given one other dynamic, I'm kind of surprised they're talking about domestic air travel over the Labor Day weekend being in excess of 25 million people. <laughs> That's like one out of every 12 Americans flying on Labor Day. It's Labor Labor Day. You, you go out and play golf. You, you cook some brats. You, you know, have people over for a picnic. Where are you going on Labor Day? Well, further, and here's the thing that kind of amazed me kind of the sidebar to it. Have you looked at uh, airline prices lately? It's just amazing. I mean, flights that used to be relatively affordable. I know somebody who recently booked a trip to Nashville. And there used to be, I, I don't know if there still is, there used to be a direct flight option out of Mitchell to Nashville, and I'm not sure which airline it was. But it was generally... In the round trip, the three hundred hour range. Now to get there and back, you're talking about five hundred bucks. You can almost get a limo to Nashville for five hundred bucks. Paul says he drove to Nashville. And it's a nice ride. It's what eleven hours? No, not quite that far. About nine, right? So, is that where you got that hat you're wearing? So, so Paul says that yeah, you drive to. Well, so you, you take 94 down, you hook up with 65. It goes right through the state of Indiana. And and, and then you uh, go into Louisville. And if you're Paul and his wife, you stop and take some extensive bourbon tour to go soak your liver in, in booze. And then, oh, and then you go to, you, you, you're staying at some like, uh, you know, Comfort Inn in, in Louisville, all stinking of bourbon. <laughs> and then you get up the next day and you finish the drive to Nashville. So you did it over two days, which is, it's just, is smart. I don't want to drive anywhere for nine hours anymore. I'm an old fart. I just can't. I can't take that much time in the car. I suppose that Louisville, like in the old days when we drove to uh, drove to Florida on spring break, we always thought Louisville was the the second marker. The first one was Indianapolis. That was like four and a half hours. Louisville was what six hours into it. Um, Nashville was like nine. Uh, and then you, you you screwed around over the middle of the state of Tennessee and Atlanta. Now, we were, went all the way down to, like, the Naples area. Atlanta was about 12 hours away, and yet that was only halfway there because you have to drive the entire state of Florida and two-thirds of the, st- the length of the state of, uh, of did I say Florida? I meant Georgia. You had to drive the whole length of Georgia and two-thirds of the length of Florida to get down to Fort Myers Beach, which is where we went, which is 20 or 30 miles from Naples. It's a lot of driving. We used to do it in shifts. Um. <laughs> So, okay, a stupid story, but I'll, I'll tell it because it takes up a minute. It's not too bad. Um, we'd been doing it for several years. And to show you what kind of people we were, you know, a lot of people in, in the 1970s who went to spring break in Florida, it was almost universally the Atlantic side. You wanted to go to Daytona. You wanted to go to, to Miami. You wanted to go to Fort Lauderdale. Palm Beach, places like that. Well, we did that the first year. We were actually still in high school, and we didn't like it. So we started going down to the Gulf side, like Sanibel Island, that area. 
Fort Myers Beach is very close to, to Sanibel Island. But we found so, out something else. Not only were there still more than enough women to chase, but better golf courses. So we bring our clubs to go play, play golf. Oh, less crowded and, um, and really nice. Anyway, so it was the same four guys basically that went for, for three of these four years. And in the fourth year of college, um, one other individual from the North Shore who we didn't meet in high school, we'd met in college, a very fair skinned fellow. Um, decided to be the fourth person. We needed a fourth guy. So we're driving down. His first name is Jeff. And we get, you know, this is like late March or early April, and we get past, you know, into the southern part of Georgia, like down near Valdosta, Georgia. And Jeff was part of the team. I was not part of his two-man team. We drove in two-man teams. You drive for six hours. One guy drives three. His partner drives three. Then those guys go in the back seat. The two guys from the back seat come up, and each one of them drives three. And, and that way you're driving two three-hour shifts, four guys that covers 24 hours, right? So when Jeff is driving, and now, now he's, he's you know almost to the Georgia-Florida line, He's got the window open, and he's hanging his left arm out the window. Very fair-skinned guy. And we're like, you know, you... you, And he's just... It was a cold, crappy winter in Wisconsin, and he was just reveling in the the rush of warm air. Oh, this feels good. This is going to be wonderful. And we're like, Jeff... I mean, you're, you're, you you don't have any sunscreen on that thing. Your arm's going to get burned. No, it's fine. Feels good. Finally getting some warmth. I was baking all the chill out of me and all, all this other nonsense that he's, uh, he's spewing. So sure enough, he drives his, you know, a couple hours that way. The next day, his left forearm is like three times its normal size. Just big, huge blisters all over the place, sun poisoning. He, we were down there for 10 days. For the first six days, he had to go outside with his arm wrapped in a towel. He just looked like a, a complete idiot. <laughs> a complete idiot. <laughs> I felt bad for him. You know, there's, there's, I mean, you know, the drinking age in those days was 18. You know, it's pretty hard to come on to chicks in the bar when you've got a white towel wrapped around your arm. Although it is a good talking point. You know, but then if he tells the truth, then he's a dope. He should, he should, if he would have said, well, I got into a big knife fight trying to defend some other woman's honor, something like that, Ooh, I burnt it, you know, driving down. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it doesn't work. So, anyway, thank you for humoring me and allowing me to tell that story. Um, I listened to some other talk shows today just to see if my little silent prediction in my adult brain would come true that most people would lead their talk shows with some sort of discussion of Joe Biden's speech from last night. I'm not going to do that. Why not? Because I don't think it's all that worthy of getting that much attention. I am going to discuss a little bit about it in the third hour of the show. But I don't think this is anything to... to you know, It didn't have such gravitas as to be the lead story. You know, so Biden got up and, and called you know, half the country, you know, deplorables who, who won't obey the rule of law. There's no news there. And, and his, the strategy 
behind so doing is so painfully transparent. Yeah, he's got to you know, direct the country's attention to, to anything other than his own record. So there, there's no big intrigue nor any mystery in trying to figure out why he gave the speech. The optics of it were just flat-out horrid. I don't know who's doing the staging for the Democrats these days. They may want to They may want to rethink that. Paul, Paul says Hitler-esque. Well, well yeah, the, yeah the, 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 the blood red. Yeah. You, you, you think, you think this, this uh, speech, instead of being held in Philadelphia, should have been held at Nuremberg? Is that what you're saying? No, no, I, I, don't, I won't go quite that far. I think the Hitler comparisons are, are kind of silly. Although some people are upset that, um, that two Marines were used sort of as props in the whole thing, and we'll get to that later on. But anyway, my point is that Biden's speech in and of itself is not so important as to be the, the thing that we should all be focusing on. In fact, I would suggest to you, my fellow MAGAite, that focusing on Biden's speech is exactly what Joe Biden is hoping for. I think Joe Biden's speech ought to be given the attention that it it has with regard to corresponding value, and that is a little bit but not much, and certainly don't posture it as any huge deal. So that's going to be later on in the program. I am going to talk about uh, the student loan bailout and how that's making no one happy. Not even the people who are getting the money seem to be all that happy. Um, Test scores um, are coming out covering the period when schools were shut down due to COVID. Um, I've got some thoughts on that, and, and certainly it is beyond argument now that you know, the decision to close schools and, and shut down in-person learning has provided a tremendous handicap to American school children. We'll get into that later on. Uh, a few more thoughts on um, uh, the federal law enforcement apparatus and its seemingly level of, or some seemingly level of corruption that it is displaying and, and what that means and how that perhaps tears the country apart. And I know Mark talked about this a little bit yesterday. There's a story um, getting some play statewide about McGuanago, and they still have the, the uh, Native American team nickname of Indians, and some woman um, who lives in suburban Madison uh, saw this and got all upset. And I, I think I'd like to make a final point on this. I think I've made this point before on the air, but there is a reason why Native Americans shouldn't be offended. As a matter of fact, the Washington Post did a poll of tens of thousands of Native Americans. I want to say this was probably five or six years ago. And showed nearly nine in ten Native Americans aren't offended by this. So, um, but for all the people who who have their emotions not quite in the right balance on this, I think I have a way of looking at it to make you understand why you shouldn't be offended at all. We'll do that. Also, the iHeartRadio Music Flyaway Contest uh, will be in the 5 o'clock hour. I won't wait until uh, 5.47 or whatever it was when Belling gave the, gave the word yesterday. It was like like eight, eight minutes uh, short. Uh, we'll do it close to the top of the 5 o'clock hour to give you a full window. Uh, WISN's had five listeners uh, in this uh, contest cycle, which ends next Friday. So we got one more week to go. And the winner gets... Um, uh, 
airfare, a, a trip for two to Vegas, basically, to see this. Uh, airfare, hotel, ground transportation, tickets to both nights of the iHeartRadio Music Festival. There's a daytime event, too, that uh, you can go stand out in the sun and watch. Get tickets to that, plus a $1,000 gift card as well. So the prize package is pretty, pretty nice, as Larry David would say. Okay. I'm not going to talk about Biden's speech from last night, but I am going to talk about a speech he gave earlier this week. Also in the state of Pennsylvania. Apparently, Pennsylvania is now the go-to state for Biden when he wants to make a speech and get some attention. He made the speech in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania on Tuesday. And if the content of that speech is any indication... The political strategists on the Democrat side think that the voting public is one of three things. They think the public is either gullible or they believe that the public is forgetful or they believe the public is just plain stupid. Let me explain. In that speech... Joe Biden postured the Republican Party as the party that is soft on crime. That's That was the whole point of the speech. It's not us. The, the Democrats realize they're vulnerable on the crime issue. Now they're going to try to gaslight as, as, you know, to the point of, of almost absurdity, where they're going to try to say, no, 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 no. We're the ones. We're the ones who back the blue. We're the ones who support the police. It's those Republicans. What are they thinking? They don't want to have more cops out on the street. It's just stupid and absurd. And again, that's they must think that you were gullible or forgetful or, or dumb. So Biden is trying to posture the Republicans as the party that's soft on crime, while the mighty Democratic Party is the party that offers moral and emotional and financial support for the police. Of course, it is all a load of bovine excrement, all of it. Joe Biden is hoping you don't remember that Democratic politicians from local office holders all the way up to members of the House of Representatives we're calling on defunding the police just two short years ago. And that demand grew much, much, much louder after George Floyd was killed. And now, while not as loud, it certainly has not gone away. We are still seeing, especially at the local level, at the city council level in places like Minneapolis, we are seeing... Democrat politicians toying with the idea of defunding the police. They'll, they'll try to couch it in, in other things. Oh no, we're not trying to defund the police. We're trying to reimagine law enforcement. What does that mean? Reimagine law enforcement. You know, in a lot of these cities that have exploded in violent crime, the cops have been relegated to kind of the mop up crew. You know, they get there, they count the 37 shell casings on the, on the pavement and, and, you know, drag the, the, the four bullet riddled bodies towards an ambulance, try to get them to a hospital or, or to the morgue. This movement, like I said, not as loud 
It certainly hasn't gone away, not even close. From Seattle to Chicago and elsewhere, Democratic politicians have been undermining the cops. Here's a really good rule of thumb when it comes to, to violent crime, when it comes to homicide. This is a this is a good test. If you're asking yourself, what are the chances that I'm going to a place that has a relatively high rate of violent crime or a relatively high rate of homicide? A good rule of thumb, a good test is this. The higher percentage of Democrats living in an area, the more dangerous that area tends to be. I have proof of that. Here are the U.S. cities with the 20 highest murder rates. What do they have in common? I'm going to read you the 20 in order from top to bottom. St. Louis, Missouri, 69.4 homicides per 100,000 people. Think about that. That's seven out of every 10,000 people. What is, what is, um, what is the amphitheater on the Summerfest grounds hold, Paul? About 10,000, roughly? Think about that. About 10,000? Is that, is that close? I haven't been in there in a long time. So let, let's just say it's 10,000. You go into a concert, you're going to see, um, Keith Urban at the, at the AmFam amphitheater on the Summerfest grounds. There's 10,000 people there. If it's St. Louis, seven of them are likely to be murder victims. Just seven people at random. That's, that's pretty stunning. St. Louis is number one. This is the highest homicide rate in the U.S. Baltimore is second. New Orleans is third. Detroit, fourth. And after that, Cleveland, Las Vegas, Kansas City, Memphis, Newark, and Chicago round up the, round up the top ten. From uh, number 11 on, it's Cincinnati, Philadelphia, Milwaukee comes in at 13. How proud that makes all of us. Tulsa, Oklahoma is 14th, and after that, Pittsburgh, Indianapolis, Louisville, Oakland, Washington, D.C., and Atlanta. Now, what's the common thread? Of those 20 cities with the highest murder rates in the U.S., 19 are led by mayors who are Democrats. Only one, Tulsa, has a Republican mayor. And what's even more interesting about this list is that some of these cities, I don't think, I believe I'm right when I say this, I don't believe Memphis has ever had a Republican mayor. Some of these cities have had Democrats in the executive chair in, in the, um, as mayor for decades and decades and decades and decades. So of these 20 cities, 19 of them have mayors who are Democrats. And and here's another uncomfortable truth. And it's uncomfortable because it seems politically incorrect to point it out, but it deserves to be pointed out because it definitely plays a factor. And that uncomfortable truth is this. All of these violent cities, the 20 I just read, have concentrations of racial minorities in some neighborhoods where a subculture of thugism is allowed to flourish and that basically goes through a process of victimizing other members of the minority communities. Do you have that Sean Duffy audio uh, handy, Paul? 
What are you doing back there? You, you got wipes? Have you, have you made some kind of mess? You've got Lysol wipes back there? Is there some sort of like biohazard thing going on? You're, you're cleaning up all the coffee rings. You people are just slobs back there. Oh, you clean them up. Okay, all right. Paul's claiming he's like a mom cleaning all this stuff up, which conjures kind of issues of you in like an apron, which is just not good. Anyway, um, so uh, Sean Duffy, the former uh, Wisconsin congressman from from upstate, was on Fox News Channel, and he had some thoughts about you know, what's really driving crime and violent crime in the U.S. Joe Biden said nothing in regard to law enforcement and the squad's effort to defund them when that movement was afoot. He was silent when that happened. Um, if, you ask, if you ask police officers around America, Todd, that would be the best poll on who supports them. They would tell you Joe Biden doesn't support us. Democrats don't support us. Uh, it's Republicans who have had our backs through good times and in bad. And by the way, if you support law enforcement, maybe you should call out the left-wing DAs, the woke DAs that won't prosecute crimes in communities. And by the way, you should call out the Democrat voters and the Democrat money people who support these woke DAs. You know, that's interesting that, that, that Sean Duffy there identified, you know, not just the policymakers on funding law enforcement, but also the people who are in charge of the, you know, day-to-day hands-on execution of enforcing the law. And a lot of these George Soros financed DAs in these big cities, Kim Fox and others, uh, what's the, the goofball in LA, Gascon, um, you know, these people are, are doing such a disservice to their communities. It really is remarkable, and it tears away at the absolute foundation of some of these places that's going to result in in a detrimental situation that's going to last for a long, long time. So what's it going to be in November? Are voters going to be boneheaded enough to believe that democratic crime policies like defunding the police and 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 squishy soft district attorneys and no cash bail, are they going to believe that, that that somehow hasn't resulted in this explosion in crime? Or will independents and suburbanites especially recognizing, will they recognize the threat of a rising crime rate? And will they decide to vote in some relatively tough on crime candidates? You know, I think there's two things that the Democratic Party on the crime issue is really, really miscalculating. The first one is the perception of independents who live not necessarily in big, violent cities, but adjacent to them. You know, in Milwaukee, with regard to people who start to get worried about violent crime spilling into their otherwise safe community, it's people who live in places like Bayview or West Dallas or Wauwatosa or Glendale or the North Shore. You know, suddenly when they see stories about armed carjackings, when they see stories about multiple shootings on a daily basis, when they see stories about highly organized property crimes, like looting, basically, you know, in in some of these organized shoplifting um, cartels, 
that worries them because all of a sudden, one of the primary reasons that they live where they live, a lot of people move to the suburbs because they want to feel safe. I mean, I... Am I a, be- the, a, a, a typical example of this, a best example of this? I grew up in the North Shore in one of the safest places in America. I, li- I lived in the city of Milwaukee for five years on the east side, which is one of the safest parts of the city. But even that wasn't safe enough for me. I moved out to the western burbs as, as soon as I possibly could. I think that's a fairly typical progression. I think a lot of these independents or maybe... You know, it, people who, who, uh, might lean, you know, soft democratic support. If they start to get worried about the crime issue and ask themselves, have people like Tony Evers done enough from the state level to fight crime locally? They might vote for the other guy. And the other demographic that the Democrats are miscalculating, especially when it relates to economic issues and crime are Hispanics. Hispanic individuals, remember, fairly strong traditional values, strong family ties. They don't want to see their own people being victimized, their family members being victimized by violent crime. Polling data would suggest that Hispanics in America are slowly but at a, a at an increasing rate moving towards a more conservative ideology and the Republican Party. And I think the crime issue is one issue that nudges them in that direction. And if it gets bad enough, it will nudge them more quickly in that direction. A lot of Hispanic individuals, these aren't individuals who don't want to work. Just look around. You know, you see a lot of Hispanics working in service industries, in construction, and a lot of entrepreneurial things, you know, whether it's a food truck, they try to start a restaurant, you know, that, that sort of thing. They don't want to see their property be you know, vandalized or taken away from them via some criminal act. That didn't sit well. So Joe Biden made a big speech in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Oh, you know, those Republicans, they're soft on crime. It's the Democrats that have supported the police. How does he say that with a straight face? And here's the answer. He only has one face. His, his one face is that squinty face that's reading the teleprompter. I'm not even sure if the words are registering inside his brain. You know that one? where he's, And you know when he's about to really, really screw up? That, that the squint gets squintier. When he's lost his place on the prompter? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a tell. There's no question about it. Wouldn't it be great to play poker with Joe Biden? Just a, but just by the way he squints at his cards, you can kind of tell what he has. Joe, Joe, I'll I'll bet that the ten percent that Hunter is holding for you that uh, <laughs> you you can't beat this. Uh, my three sevens here. Um, we'll uh, talk about uh, a big Biden giveaway: the student uh, the student loan student debt forgiveness in the next segment of the program. Three forty-two News Talk eleven thirty WISN Friday afternoon show. Jerry Bott here, hosting the program this week as we ease our way into uh, Labor Day weekend. 
uh, we'll get to the weather forecast here shortly. I love the the, the short sighted short sightedness of the extreme left. Have you seen what's going on in California? Oh yeah, buy electric cars. We want them. No, no gas powered uh, cars being sold after what twenty thirty or whatever the date was. So now, because they've they've screwed up all of their their electric grid with you know biofuels and you know some of the the hydro isn't kicking in of the way it should. You know, too much reliance on solar and and wind. Uh, you know, great that you have an electric car. Can you just not charge it this weekend? I mean, really? Are you serious? It's just crazy. Well, it's one of the reasons is, by the way, it's California. Last time I, I've, I've been alive 63 years. It gets hot there sometimes. I've, I've noticed this trend. They've had a heat wave where it's been you know, you know, borderline triple digits. So people are running their air conditioning a lot and that sort of thing. Well, you know, and, and they're talking about rolling brownouts, you know, planned brownouts. And it sure would be helpful. We can keep a lot more people, you know, in air conditioning or keep their air conditioning running if you just wouldn't charge your car, which I guess makes sense. You know, if I have a car that's dead, I might as well be able to sit in an air-conditioned house doing nothing, wasting my holiday weekend. <laughs> do, do, do the Kardashians and the celebrities, they mean the advocates for all this green energy, that those types of people, do they pay attention to this? No. And here's why. They don't pay attention to it because they're isolated from the problem. You know, it's it's one thing to be some, you know, highfalutin member of the music industry, you know, pontificating on how awful fossil fuels are and how we're polluting the planet and how, you know, we should get away from that and get to renewables and green energy and all that sort of thing. And then when the brownouts happen, you know, where somebody in Encino, California, is just roasting in their 1,100-square-foot ranch house where, you know, it's 95 degrees on the inside, and the celebrity is in their 8,000-square-foot mansion that's got seven different air conditioners all running and probably a couple generators in case uh, the power goes out as well. So are, you know, are they sensitive to the, to the ramifications of what they advocate? No, not, not even close. All right, weather from Stephanie Barrichello of Fox 6, the Fox 6 weather experts forecast. Um, tonight, partly cloudy, maybe some showers by morning. This is the first uh, uh, mention of rain I've seen for this weekend um, inserted into the forecast. Lows tonight, uh, upper 60s. Tomorrow, scattered showers and thunderstorms, plus falling temperatures all the way down to the 60s in the afternoon. Early highs in the day are going to be in the upper 70s. The winds are going to turn to the northeast off the off the lake, and uh, I'm sure cooler lakeside. So highs uh, dropping into the 60s during the afternoon. Uh, Sunday sounds fairly nice, uh, mostly cloudy, but highs in the mid-70s, and partly sunny on Monday with highs in the mid-70s. So not a total washout going into next week. Jeez, weather's beautiful. Mostly Tuesday through Wednesday, uh, Tuesday through Thursday, rather, in order. Mostly sunny, partly sunny, partly sunny. Highs 78, 80, and 80. So that's uh, that's awfully nice. I'm surprised your gold bricking rear end's not taking another day off to go to go go do something else. Go go play golf or whatever. Uh, what's it? Uh, 83 degrees right now here at uh, News Talk 1130. WISN. I want to talk about the student loan forgiveness plan. 
which, you know, we've heard so many different figures. The Biden people say, oh, it'll only cost $300 billion. Oh, that's comforting. Only $300 billion. Yeah. Um, some independent analysis, like the Wharton School of Business, is talking about it costing maybe as much as $900 billion. So let's take a middle number. Let's say that this thing is worth $500 billion. A half a freaking trillion dollars. Joe Biden's plan to forgive, and when I say forgive, you know, put it in scare quotes, forgive. Forgive means that that cost is being passed on to taxpayers like you and me. Biden's plan to forgive $10,000 of student loan debt for individuals who live in households that can have income as high as a quarter of a million dollars a year. I mean, if you're somebody making a quarter of a million dollars a year and you've got to pay off, you know, dollars dollars $1,000 a month of student loans, you ought to be able to swing that. Really, you should. You know, does that mean that you know, you, you can't go out and buy the $750,000 house that you might have to settle for the $400,000 house because that extra $1,000 of student loan money chews up what you could invest in a monthly mortgage payment? Yeah, you made that choice. Live with it, for God's sake. It's, it's, it's not like we're asking you to forego the $750,000 house and go live in a garbage dump like they do in Manila in the Philippines. So that's the plan. $10,000 worth of student loan debt forgiveness, even for people who, in terms of household income, make $250,000 per year. First of all, it's probably unconstitutional. Joe Biden, strictly uh, with regard to his power to make an executive order, forgiving debt owed to the federal treasury must be done through an act of Congress. You know, the framers of the Constitution were very, they were, they were a mite persnickety about the power of the purse strings and who got to control them. That's why the people's representatives are the ones who vote on appropriations. That appropriations bills must start in the House of Representatives. And the, the, the executive branch is meant to administer funds, but not to have the power to, in some way, shape, or form, grant money or appropriate money that's, that's, um, or, or direct money that has not already been appropriated by Congress. So it's probably unconstitutional. The interesting thing about this is who is who has standing to sue? There's been some debate over that, and you know, part of the answer is nobody's quite sure. Another thing about this bailout is that politically it is tremendously toxic. Joe Biden's making some enemies with this one. And the irony of that is, it seems like this $10,000 per person isn't even making the recipients of this gift all that happy. Let, let's break that down kind of point by point. With regard to whether or not Biden forgiving $10,000 worth of student loan debt 
per debtor, is that legal? Is that constitutional? Well, if it is, can Joe Biden now forgive any debt owed to the federal government? What about a business loan that's owed through the Small Business Administration? Can the executive, can Joe Biden just you know, wave his, uh, his pen over that and say, you know, business A, you are in my political favor. You no longer have to pay back your loan. What about VA home loans? Can Joe just wipe those out too? Make taxpayers pick up that bill? Can, can Biden work in reverse and wipe out any debt owed by the federal government to contractors or to bondholders? Can he do the opposite? He's forgiving debt. Can he also forgive debt that the, the country owes, that the government owes? Those are all good questions. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know the answers. But I have to believe that having the executive branch, having the CEO of the the country, in essence, just be able to willy-nilly wipe out a whole universe of debt when the Constitution specifically gives the power of the purse strings to Congress, that seems to me to be the pretty good a pretty good basis for declaring this move unconstitutional. Next, let's let's check out the politics of this. The under 35 college educated and disproportionately female demographic, they love this they, this idea of having $10,000 forgiven. But they were going to vote for lefties anyway, whether that be, you know, two years from now, whichever lefties running for president as a Democrat, you know, for Congress or the United States Senate, you know, these the so-called awfuls, affluent white female liberals, they're all going to vote for the, for the Democrats anyway. You know, who's, I, this is Biden rewarding Voters, but not necessarily wooing voters. I think the the voters who are happiest about this are not the Fed sitters, and they're certainly not conservatives. Which brings us to the people who are who are hacked off by this. Who who are they? People who took out loans and paid them back. Another group are the people who made a life choice to not take out a loan, and that choice has consequences based on you know, what their career path and so on. And also, the people who are probably angry about this are the people who work with their hands in, you know, in, in manufacturing or the trades or the service industry or wherever. And also, probably not happy about this, are older Americans the ones who still have some level of federal tax liability? And finally, Paul, you have that little montage ready? It's fascinating to see the reaction of some of the people who are going to be the recipients of this largesse. You'd think they would be, at the very least, happy you would hope they would be even grateful. 
But to a lot of them, this is this is just kind of a pittance. Uh, Twenty-five to thirty k a year in loans to be here, and coupled with my loans from undergrad, I plan to be over one hundred thousand dollars in debt when I graduate. Um, and so, I mean, ten k off. It's not changing anything dramatically about my life situation, but it's going to be. It, it represents another extra month, maybe year, however long of, of freedom that I get to enjoy, financial freedom that I get to enjoy post graduation. It's definitely not enough. We need a lot more help than just ten thousand dollars. Our student loans and our college tuitions for just one year are way like so much more than that. So it just makes me really sad. Cry me a river, you ingrate. It makes, it makes me sad. But, but listening to that, there's a point to be made. The people getting the 10 grand realize that this doesn't even barely make a dent into what they owe, and it also does nothing to stop the grift of the higher education racket. I have pulled the 100 top salaries at UW-Madison. They're the, the highest paid state employee on that campus is an individual, I might screw up his last name, his first name is Anath, his last name is Ses Hadri, I believe. He is a professor of economics. He makes over $640,000 a year. In fact, this is just UW-Madison. 19 UW-Madison professors make over four hundred grand a year. There's an individual by the name of Christopher Tabor. He is also a professor of economics making over $520,000 a year. The reason these kids, you know, sometimes getting degrees that aren't very marketable, but the reason they owe all this money and are paying all this high cost of higher education is the higher education world has allowed, the, not only allowed, that they have encouraged these costs to be built up. It's like a bidding war. Well, you know, we have to pay this professor of economics $347,000, or he'll go teach at Northwestern. Okay, let him go teach at Northwestern. Yeah, Paul's saying, asking, he questions how much they're actually working. How many, how many students are they seeing? How much are they actually teaching? And some of these people are doing research. I get it. But, you know, the, the grift part of it is, a lot of highly paid faculty and just layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of bureaucracy. Associate chancellors of this, assistant directors of that. Any part of the university that ends with the word center or has the word center in it is, is needless fat. The Center for Equity and Diversity. No, it's, it's got it's got somebody running it that's making a couple hundred grand. I guarantee you. 
Uh, if you want to call in and comment on this, you're certainly welcome. Uh, the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1130. 414-799-1130. Uh, out in Pewaukee, Bill is there. Good afternoon, Bill. How are you? Good afternoon, Jerry. Great. You just you just come up with some of the most interesting topics, and, of course, it's, it's what's going on in the news today. But what you're talking about, I have been involved in for a long time. One, of course, I completely agree with you and most of your listeners. This is a terrible plan, and it's going to be challenged legally uh, at some point in time. That there's been already notifications about that. However, uh, it is the same. It is very much, and I want to make two points, very much like the marijuana referendum. There are families, middle-class families, people that make $250,000 or more, millions of them, and the kids that are having this onerous debt on them right now. The Democrats, as bad as the plan is, it is a life ring. And believe me, I have first-hand knowledge, there are people out there that are going to grab that life ring. They need, you know, they're going to take it, and at least going to get them out of the polls. And when they look at, you know, who, who is offering something to help us, it doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong. They're in trouble, and they're going to reach for that. And here's what I want to say. My second point, this is so important, Republicans... We cannot sit there and be dismissive and laugh this off and show anger. There are some alternatives out there that we're not going to hurt the taxpayer, and you just touched on it. Republican Michaels, Johnson, these guys have got to come out and say, look, we understand you all are hurting. We're going to do something about it. We are going to approach it two ways. We're going to go after the universities, talk about withdrawing their grants if they don't lower tuition, and and hurt them that way. And believe me, the grants are equally as much to the universities yep. as tuitions. Yep. And secondly, we're going to go after banks who are right now, they're servicing the loans and demand that they cap these loans at 4%. And we will do this retroactively. That doesn't cost the taxpayer a thing. And you're showing the people we're going to do something about it. Right now is all we're dueling, yep. doing is railing against uh, against the wind. Bill, so, Bill I, I, I'm getting to short on time. You made two very good points. I'm going to respond to them. I'm going to turn you loose. Um, the, the second one with regard to retroactively capping um, interest rates and student loans, I, I'm not so sure how I feel about that. I mean, individuals sign on to these loans at certain uh, percentages of interest. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the lender, I think, has it right. I mean, entered into that deal in good faith. But the first thing Bill said is absolutely, it's right here in my notes. I mean, federal money has strings tied to it all the time. You want to tie some strings to the federal money that, that universities get? You make them cut their, their tuitions by 10%. Say, so look at it, you got a choice. Either you cut your tuition level by 10% or you don't get any federal money. Yeah, I'm not sure all universities get some level of federal aid, but I would say the vast majority of them do. And I think Bill was also right that that money is important to them with regard to their operations, with regard to what kind of staffing they have. You know, universities ought to have the same type of inertia, the same type of motivation that private business has to look at their staffing levels and ask themselves whether or not they can do the same, accomplish the same mission with with fewer expenditures on personnel. That's what's going on. Universities are extraordinarily personnel heavy. Do they build a lot of useless buildings too? In some cases, the answer is yes. 
But I, I will tell you that there are a lot of individuals there who offer services that are either du- duplicative or could be combined or could be done more efficiently. I guarantee you, if you took a, a business person who's used to running a lean ship and made him the chancellor of a major university like UW-Madison and said, here's your mandate, cut 15% in personnel costs in the first two years, he'd get that done easily. That, that's the low-hanging fruit, being able to cut off 15%. Um, in Pewaukee, Mike is there. Mike, you're on. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, Jerry, thank you. Let me make three major points, and that's where you can think about it. First, it's a wrong move. As you say, it's political, it's wrong, free money is not existing in this country. The first thing is people who are in debt, even though the government is now freeing, uh, forgiving all this money, people who are in debt will be in debt again as a principle. People who are hard workers will be still debt-free. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I think... This is the foundation of the economy that everybody has to work and earn money that's affected as a principle. The third one, where all the politics is going, I'm afraid in the future, the federal government will come and say, hey, since we forgive you this money, they will use it as a weapon, as I'm afraid. So these are my points, and it's not working, even though I might be benefit from it because they will forgive me, but they will use it as a weapon. Use what social media, Facebook, Twitter, they use as a weapon. Why not this for free money? In the future, they will come, hey, we give you this money uh, freely, the last, so you have to do this for us. They will do that. So I think that's my point. Gotcha. I, I do appreciate the call. Thanks much, Mike. Yeah, well, let me say he was reading my notes a little bit. And before we get to the newscast, I, I think the one thing that not many people are talking about, but it's true, is that this you know student loan bailout encourages fiscal irresponsibility? One of those two callers said, "You know these people they're going to get have this debt relieved, but but people who get in debt get in debt, and if you know if this part of the debt's relieved, you know there, there's a tendency. It's just like people who you see max out credit cards. What do they try to do? Get another credit card, right? Until they they get into this." revolving cycle of, of, of this uh, vortex of debt that they can't get out of, then all of a sudden they're declaring bankruptcy and, and that sort of thing, and people suffer. The student loan bailout is destructive on many levels. It's probably unconstitutional. It's an attempt to buy the political loyalty of the elites, in my opinion. It's a kick in the, in the jewels to people who paid back their student loans or didn't take out any loans in the first place. And it also tacitly encourages colleges and universities, instead of to economize, which is what we need them to do, it encourages them to make their prices even higher. But perhaps the worst thing is the attempt to legitimize this rationale. People made a choice that can restrict them from making other choices now and in the future. And it's the taxpayer's responsibility to somehow fix that and pay for the fixes. You know, if Paul decides to go borrow $50,000 to go to college, and that means he can't have that palace in Cedarburg that he's living in, is it my responsibility as a taxpayer to, to, you know, to relieve him of that $50,000 worth of, of debt so that he can, he can go buy that bigger house? How far does that go? You know, what if, if, if the, if the crybaby 
uh, stuff starts to be, you know, I, I live in a place with really high rent, so I, I have to delay getting married. Maybe taxpayers should subsidize my rent so I can get married. Or, well, we bought a bigger house because we wanted to have kids, but the mortgage eats up so much of our money we can't afford the kids, so maybe taxpayers ought to pay some of our mortgage so we can have the kids. I mean, it's, a, it's really kind of the similar logic, isn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm taking it to a, an absurd extreme, but with regard to the politics of the left, I'm not sure you can take anything to an absurd extreme. This is not, I don't think you, you, can, you can get to the point of absurdity. Yeah, we had to buy a second car because we're both working outside the home. But the extra car payment means we can't take a vacation to get rid of the stress that we have because we're both working two jobs. How about subsidizing some of our vacation? And while you're at it, can you pay for our hotel while we're actually on vacation? Where does it stop? Where does it end? We are encouraging fiscal irresponsibility. You know... If you're somebody racking up $120,000 in debt to get a master's degree in 17th century French poetry, I'm sorry, as a taxpayer, I don't feel it's my responsibility to, to cast you know, shekels of mercy upon you out of my wallet. Second hour of the Friday Afternoon Show here on Newstalk 1130 WISN. It's the 2nd of September. Jerry Bott here. Labor Day weekend. Weather's not going to be quite as good as it looked like it was going to be a little bit better, and it kind of took a little bit of a turn for the worse, some some um, pre- precipitation tomorrow. Uh, but then Sunday and Monday look like they're going to be fine days. Paul, you have plans? What are you doing? Is there some sort of a festival in your elite neighborhood in, in Cedarburg? Where you, there's a winery in Cascade. You might go see a band there. That, yeah, that, that sounds incredibly dull. Don't, don't, don't. Don't don't you people in, in this this incredibly wealthy subdivision block off the streets and have some block parties where you you exclude everybody else of, of lesser means and you know, I'm sure you have done those. Uh, so there's that. Um, I wish I had something more exciting to report for my actually that winery in Cascade sounded pretty good compared to what I got going on. Um, I want to get into this thing. It's, it's gotten some attention. Um, this hit piece that the Journal Sentinel did is a, a real attempt at a smear on Republican gubernatorial candidate Tim Michaels. And the, the objective of this piece, which was the lead piece for a day on JS Online, with the headline, Wisconsin Republican Governor Candidate Tim Michaels Uses His Personal Foundation to Fund Anti-Gay and Anti-Abortion Groups. My God, he's a bad man. What they're trying to do is vilify him and his wife for donating millions of dollars to Christian churches and pro-life groups and, and to medical research. And bef- uh, there, there is a, a reason and there's a trend here that is deeply disturbing that I think needs to be identified, and I'm going to identify it. As a matter of fact, you know what? Let's leave the phone lines open. If there's one or, Paul, if there's one or two calls on point on this, especially when it comes to what the media is trying to do with Christianity, which is kind of where this goes. Uh, 414-799-1130 is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414 799 
1130. Before I, I get into the, 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 the guts of this thing, I, I need to say this. The Journal Sentinel has always been a liberal mouthpiece. We, you know, we get it. We understand it. We take it as such. But I will tell you that under the control and direction of George Stanley, what is his title? Managing editor, executive editor, editor-in-chief. He's the big tune over there. Under his direction, this has become nothing more than a pathetic, vile, ethically challenged instrument that spews extremist liberal ideology, period, the end. That's what it does. Their reporters are stenographers for lefty talking points and go out of their way to throw out pieces that have no semblance of journalistic balance when it's critical of something that's conservative in nature. All pretense of balanced journalism at the Journal Sentinel is gone, in my opinion. So, this hit piece on Michaels, I believe, has a purpose beyond the willful mischaracterization of the intent of some of the charitable donations that he's made, he and his wife have made. It's more than that. I think this is an attempt to besmirch the purpose of some of those organizations that are based in in Christian values. Let me say that again. It's an attempt to besmirch, to to soil the reputation of the purpose, the mission, if you will, of some of the organizations that are based in Christian values that Tim Michaels and and his wife have donated to. Let me just make sure everybody's up to speed on some of the particulars in the article. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's relatively lengthy. But let me read some excerpts from this article that was uh, published, I think it was on Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken. Wisconsin Republican candidate for governor Tim Michaels and his wife donated $250,000 to anti-LGBTQ and anti-abortion groups, representing about 15% of his total donations in 2020. The Timothy and Barbara Michaels Family Foundation funded organizations that oppose all forms of contraception and abortions in all cases. The foundation also spent thousands on churches with anti-LGBTQ beliefs. The donations provide a window into how Michaels may approach policymaking on such issues if elected governor, if he unseats incumbent Tony Evers. Let me, that, that's just such a stretch. The donations provide a window into how Michaels may approach policymaking on such issues. How in the world would the author of this article know that? I suppose the the key word there is may. Well, it may. It may not, too, but it may. Michael's campaign spokesperson, Anna Kelly, said the Michael's family philanthropy is not political. Quoting Kelly, quote, Well, while the media is desperate to find lines of attack, their generosity helps support causes they believe in and funds cancer research and other Christian causes, according to Anna Kelly. Article goes on. The Michaels Foundation gave a total of $175,000 in 2020 to Wisconsin Right to Life and Pro-Life Wisconsin Education Task Force and Avail NYC, a New York City crisis pregnancy center. Later on in the article, the couple also donated $50,000 to Spring Creek Church in Pewaukee and $5,000 to Elmbrook Church in Brookfield. Spring Creek Church's pastor, Chip Bernhard, has suggested that people who have an abortion need forgiveness and allowing transgender, excuse me, allowing transgender children to use the bathroom of their choice is, quote, awful, end quote. Later on in the article, 
The Timothy and Barbara Michaels Family Foundation donated a total of $1.66 million in 2020, with the largest donation of a million dollars going to Cornell University in New York. Their couple's daughter, Sophie, was diagnosed with a rare brain tumor at age 11. The vice chair of the Department of Neurological Surgery at Cornell pioneered a rare surgery that saved her life. The Michaels have pledged $3 million to endow the Michaels family professorship in pediatric neurological surgery. Again, that at Cornell. The article also notes that in March of 2022, the Michaels family donated $15 million to establish the Michaels Rare Cancers Research Laboratories at the Medical College of Wisconsin Cancer Center. That, of course, is based in Wauwatosa. Other 2020 donations include $150,000 to the Sisters of St. Francis of Zizi in St. Francis. Foundation also gave to a handful of anti-abortion and Christian organizations, including uh, $69,000 to Faith Lutheran Church and School of Fond du Lac, $20,000 to the Milwaukee Veritas Society, $12,650 to the New Beginnings Pregnancy Center in Fond du Lac, and $4,000 to the Pro-Life Wisconsin Education Task Force. The horrors. Tim Michaels and his wife gave money to groups that want to preserve human life and to a church where the pastor doesn't think it's right for males and females to go to the bathroom together. What monsters the Michaels are for supporting those groups. And by the way, Elmbrook Church? Elmbrook Church? I went to Elmbrook Church for 15 years. And if it weren't for the people like the late Stuart Briscoe and Mel Lorenz and others of the pastoral staff there at Elmbrook, I wouldn't be a Christian. You want to know some of the monstrous activities that I participated in along with my wife while we were at Elmbrook? We led high school church groups, you know, Bible study groups. For the Advent fireworks on the first Saturday of Advent, we made hot chocolate for people to drink while they watched the fireworks. What, what monsters we are. We would bake and deliver Christmas cookies to fellow congregants who lost a loved one during the previous year. We packed meals for kids in Haiti. In fact, tomorrow at Fox River Christian Church, the church I go to now, which I guess would be just as horrible as these other ones, 600 volunteers, and my wife and I among them, will pack 140,000 meals for kids in South America. How wicked of us to do this. Well, Paul says, I hope you don't donate to this. Over the years at Elmbrook, my wife and I gave tens of thousands of dollars to Elmbrook Church. And I'm guessing we're probably north of that number, at least five figures. We've only been at Fox River for a couple of years, but whatever. Yeah, no, we give money to them. Yeah, but, but all I'm saying is these organizations, these churches, I mean, if you support saving the lives of babies, if you support um, some of the initiatives that some of these Christian, uh, uh, non-denominational Christian churches are involved in. I mean, Elmbrook supports uh, Christian missionaries literally in every corner of the globe. These are not horrible, bad organizations. These are pretty wonderful people. Tim Michaels made an appearance on the Jay Weber show yesterday and offered this particular statement, which I found to be, first of all, I'm proud of him for the position that he's taking. And this seemed to sort of capture what was going on here. Churches that we give to are 
I hate to even categorize it as normal churches, regular churches, but and the the media has taken this and said that these are anti-gay organizations. Uh, we've reached a new point in America. The liberal media has reached a new point of absurdity, and everybody needs to push back. What do I mean by that? I really believe that this race, the race for governor right here in Wisconsin, is at a tipping point for the future of politics, the future of government in the United States of America. The the left will do anything, anything to win. Tim Michaels hit the nail on the head in about the middle of that soundbite. The new push in the extremist left media is to characterize mainstream Christianity as oppressive and bigoted. That's the point. That's where they're going with this. In fact, that's what the lefty media is trying to make the new normal, that traditional Christian values are bad and shouldn't be tolerated. That's what they're going for. And this, in microcosm, is an example of exactly that. Shame on the people in the media that are doing this. These are the values that are the backbone of the country, for God's sake. 414-799-1130 is the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let me go to Cedarburg and speak to Mike. Mike, you're on. Go ahead, sir. And Jerry, all those activities that you do, packing all those dinners, I learned last night that you're actually an enemy of the state. <laughs> but uh, n- that notwithstanding, my friend. Did we lose Mike? You still there, Mike? Huh. I can't hear him. Do you hear him, Paul? No, I think, we, I think we lost him. I think we lost him. I'm sorry about that because Mike usually has uh, excellent points uh, to make. Uh, for some reason, that line seems to have locked up, Paul. I don't know why that might be. Uh, let's uh, try to go to uh, Bayview and David. David, you're on. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. I, you know, unfortunately, about 70% of the population and a lot of people I know are brainwashed and are unable to critically think past an article like that. They read that and they laugh it up. And, and that's why the media is doing what they're doing. That's why they're able to get away with that. Nobody's going to call them on that other than you know, conservative talk radio, that, that's that's the problem we have. I don't know how we're ever going to get past that. Hmm. You know, well, you know, it, yeah, here's here's the way you get past it. I, I understand what you're saying. That You're saying that the low information types read the headline, oh, this is awful, you know, I get it, and that they shape their opinions that way. But at some point, you know, there's, there's, there's more people out there that are on the side of, you know, Tim and Barbara Michaels doing good work by giving, I mean, they funded $15 million locally to a cancer research center at the Medical College of Wisconsin that could pay big dividends with actually saving lives there are people who admire that there's a lot of christians in this in this state that ought to take note that instead of vilifying these christian values as the journal sentinel is attempting to do that we should celebrate them if tim michaels were here i'd shake his hand and say you know congratulate him for being a good human being and doing the right thing he's got financial resources and he, he and his wife deem it appropriate to go out and use the impact of those resources in a positive way i think that is a, certainly a wonderful thing to do um in richfield marie you're on go ahead hi i'm just calling of course about the hit piece um i just would like to say that the journal or the urinal whatever you want to call it has been anti anti-conservative for years i dropped it oh six years ago it's not allowed in my house not allowed to even read it (laughs) but with this happening what they're doing is they're anti-christian number one and number two is that's racism. So they're a very racist type 
a paper. Well, I'm, I said, here, here's the thing. I mean, w- thanks for the call, Marie. I mean, in, in a situation like this, where you're taking the good works of of a couple who are trying to have a positive impact on on the community, on the world, you know, beyond the borders of our state, and trying to vilify that and paint that somehow as 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 ugly, is just as vile of of a move as you can make when you have a responsibility. In, as a journalistic responsibility to properly frame and characterize, you know, the, the context of a story. I mean, this headline, you know, can, you know, Tim Michaels uses personal foundation to fund anti-gay and anti-abortion groups. You know, is that technically right? Well, I don't know. Maybe some of the money that or some of the groups that he funds do have, you know, strong stances that are anti-abortion. Certainly pro-life Wisconsin is one of them. You know, Wisconsin right to life. You know, why is that so awful? There are people who believe, and I'm one of them, that you know, that a child, you know, in the womb has rights. It's a human life. You know, it's funny that that uh, all the, the the donations to cancer centers and all that sort of stuff is pushed down. You know, twenty paragraphs in the article too. That's that's not an accident. Well, Paul's asking, where's the article probing Governor Evers' donations? Well, they do say in the article that, 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 um, this paragraph, the donations provide a window into how Michaels may approach his policy making issues, uh, on such issues, like, I guess, gay and abortion issues, if he, uh, is elected governor, uh, if he unseats incumbent Tony Evers, who does not have a foundation. Well, no kidding. How would Tony Evers get a foundation? He has been suckling at the public teat. You know, in, in the ed- education bureaucracy, he's an educrat. You know, these people make good money, but they're not anybody out there that's, that's an entrepreneur that's trying to build a big company, that's trying to have a larger impact other than, you know, making, you know, policy recommendations for the Plymouth School District or wherever he's from. It's just nauseating. Anyway, I think that, that this is backfires big time. That as this gets out, and as it gets out, that Tim Michaels and his wife are using the power of the wealth that they've amassed to try to do good and positive work, I think, in the end, is a tremendous positive for him. And for some individuals that don't know who Michaels is, Remember, you know, in the Marquette poll, there's still a significant portion of Wisconsin that, you know, haven't heard enough to form an opinion. Well, they're, they're trying to paint him as some sort of anti-gay bigot. But in reality, what he's trying to do is support life on a lot of different fronts. If that is giving money to pro-life groups, fine. If that's funding uh, chair, um, medical research like cancer research, more power to him. I think he scores more points and wins more votes than loses on that. News Talk 1130 WISN. Jerry Bond here, Friday afternoon show, leading us into the Labor Day weekend, last uh, summer holiday uh, weekend of the year. The summer went fast, didn't it? You know what part of it was? Is that, that the weather in April and May was so crappy. It, it went from like 
like kind of cold, clammy, semi-spring to summer, like instantly at about the third week of May or so. And um, that's, I guess, why it seemed to be uh, so accelerated. Well, Paul said that one reason it went fast is that all the events were on. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot more stuff to do because all the events were back. What do you think about Summerfest going to this three weekend um, format? You, you're okay with it? Here's my my only issue. With, well, it's it's my only issue with it, but it's a pretty big issue with it. I think one of the things that made Summerfest unique was the fact that it was continuous. It was an event. It was a happening. It was eleven days, and I know. That, you know, the Summerfest people, when they hear people like me go, yeah, I'd love to skip out on a Wednesday afternoon and go down there and, you know, have some lunch and drink a couple of beers and catch some some of the side stage music because it wasn't very crowded. And that's their point. Right? It's not very crowded on a Wednesday afternoon. And I, admittedly, it's the higher attendance is on Fridays and Saturdays. And, and instead of having just two Fridays and Saturdays the way that, you know, in an 11-day straight run, they can have three. I, I totally get it. On the other hand, attendance was like four hundred thousand and change this past year, pre pandemic. Um, you know, in an eleven day run, it was up around seven hundred thousand or so. This, and there were reasons behind that too. I mean, uh, the Beebs, uh, you know, his face got all frozen, and he had to to not to stop touring. Didn't he have that that paralysis of his face? Justin Bieber. Uh, and, you know, so they had some cancellations. And then, you know, a couple of COVID outbreaks and these bands got all worried about it and decided not to show up. So I, I get, I understand there were some extenuating circumstances. But I, I really think that as time goes on, Summerfest, the people at World Festivals ought to start to ask themselves whether or not part of the attraction of Summerfest, what makes it a thing is the fact that it's this long, continuous celebration of music. As opposed to three, you know, consecutive weekends of of uh, of, of high-profile bands playing, the latter is good. I think the former is better, in my opinion. No, it was not Bell's palsy. That's like really, really short. That's a really short thing. It was something more serious than Bell's palsy. Yeah, Bell's palsy is when you have like a, one side of your face is droopy. Yeah, it looks like you had a stroke, but you didn't. That's right. No, this is this was more serious than that, and it lasted weeks. I, uh, well, just look up look up uh, Justin Bieber's face paralysis and see what it says. It's, it's not going to say Bell's palsy. Uh, Stephanie Barlichello pens the following forecast from the office of the Fox 6 weather folks. Tonight, partly cloudy uh, skies, chance of showers by morning, lows in the upper 60s. Tomorrow, scattered showers and thunderstorms, falling temperatures into the 60s during the afternoon. Early on in the day, the highs will be in the upper 70s. Sunday, mostly cloudy with highs uh, in the low 70s and partly sunny. Uh, on Monday, Labor Day, highs mid-70s on Monday. So all in all, not a perfect but not an awful uh, Labor Day weekend forecast. Still 83 degrees here at News Talk 1130 WISN. Sometimes, 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 sometimes timing is everything. Timing, whether planned or accidental, can sometimes put a situation into proper context. It can put a situation into sharper relief. Here is one such situation. I'm going to call this Tony and the test scores. Our governor, tough-talking Tony Evers, issued his 
kind of phony folksy. Aw, shucks. Shucks, folks, it's time to go back to school. Back to school. Very exciting time for us and our children. He issued that press release, and I think he said it on video, too. I, did, I couldn't bring myself to watch. Anyway, he did it on a press release yesterday. One part of the press release said this. Should I do it in Tony's voice or should I do it in my voice? Tony's voice? I also want to take this opportunity as we head back to the new school year to thank all of our educators and school staff and make sure all of you know that I appreciate the seen and unseen work you do on a daily basis. Every day, Wisconsin educators go above and beyond to ensure our students get the best education possible. Over the last few years, I've been amazed, but frankly not surprised, at the remarkable stories of how our educators and school staff have stepped up to support our kids in our schools through immense challenges. So, in other words, Tony is slapping the educational bureaucracy of Wisconsin on the back. And I will admit, some teachers in some school districts during COVID stepped up. There's no question about that. This is We, we can't paint with a huge broad brush. In a lot of districts, a lot of the suburban and outlying districts, academic staffers, teachers, administrators... School workers, some districts, they did step up. But in Wisconsin, did the MPS teachers step up? Did the unionized teachers in the city of Milwaukee step up? In Madison, did the unionized teachers in the city of Madison schools step up? No way. Not even close. And in many large urban school districts across this country, Unionized teachers did everything in their power to thwart in-person instruction. Remember in Chicago, the mayor, the odd-looking Lori uh, Lightpuss or whatever her name is, she she ordered the teachers to go back to the classroom. The class, the teachers said, and they stayed home. Did anything happen to the teachers? Not a thing. In Washington D.C., basically the same thing. Teachers just refused to show up. In the LA, the city, the unionized teachers in the city of Los Angeles, if you recall this, had a list of demands that they wanted satisfied before they returned to the classroom. Some of them dealt with climate change. It was ridiculous. It was just absolutely absurd. There are some teachers, not all, some almost universally unionized teachers that did everything in their power to keep the schools closed and to keep in-person instruction from occurring. And now, after Tony Evers has slapped the education of bureaucracy in the back, thanks for stepping up, we now have evidence of the damage that has been done by the teachers, by some unionized teachers, again, not all, some, fighting like crazy to keep Schools close. This from the National Review. Elementary school students' math and reading scores plummeted 
to the lowest levels in decades amid school shutdowns implemented in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, national test results released yesterday show. In math, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which has dubbed itself the nation's report card, reported a first-ever score drop among nine-year-olds since it was first administered in 1973. Good God. That, that's nearly 50 years ago. Article goes on. Their reading scores dropped by the largest margin since 1990. The New York Times reported that, indicating a serious setback for literacy acquisition. The assessment also measured the window between 2020, when COVID-19 erupted, and 2022. Average scores for nine-year-olds in 2022 declined five points in reading and seven points in math compared to 2020. The learning loss was experienced by kids across race and income level, but it was particularly severe among low-performing and minority students, a well-documented disparity that widened during the two years of remote schooling. Students in the 90th percentile of scores lost three points in math, but students in the bottom 10th percentile lost 12 points in math. That's four times as much, let me interject. Article goes on. Black students lost 13 points in math compared with five points among white students. As a consequence, the white-black score gap from 25 points in 2020 had expanded to 33 points in 2022. A May study conducted by Harvard University found that school closures and remote learning disproportionately harmed the academic performance of minority and low-income students, exacerbating the existing gap separating low-income and minority students from their white, wealthier counterparts now i don't have the data broken out specifically for the state of wisconsin but i'm going to take a well-educated guess and say where the schools were closed for in-person learning hey madison hey milwaukee i think the kenosha schools were another school uh, district where the schools were closed for an inordinate amount of time in those districts student performance almost assuredly declined why did some teachers not step up? I don't know. I mean, the nurses stepped up. The doctors stepped up. The truck drivers stepped up. The store stockers stepped up. The cops stepped up. The firefighters stepped up. The paramedics stepped up. The radio talk show hosts stepped up. We all showed up. Why not the teachers? Not, not all teachers. Why not some teachers? And I, I've made this point before, and I'm going to make it again because this is a really good one. Here's something, an offshoot of COVID, a lesson and a dynamic that COVID showed us. It showed us the difference between people who thought that their job and their purpose was mission critical or mission optional. Well, yeah, Paul's talking about essentials. I'm talking about people's attitudes. If you're a teacher, a unionized teacher, and your union's trying to keep the schools closed, but you think that it's critical that you, that your, your, your mission of having in-person instruction is critical, you would be making a stink over that. We saw it with a lot of churches. Some churches, you know, closed down in-person worship for months and months after it was necessary to do so. You know, we get to the the, the late summer 
in Wisconsin anyway, the late summer of 2020, infection rates from COVID were down around 2%. Hospitalizations were down to next to nothing. And there were a lot of churches around here that still closed their doors. They had, I'm assuming, they had people behind the scenes, you know, offering legal or medical advice. Well, there's liability. What if somebody gets sick? We could get sued. Oh, ooh. And a lot of those churches lost congregants. COVID showed the difference in people's commitment to their mission. Those of us who thought our missions are mission critical showed up. And a lot of people who thought that their missions are sort of mission optional, that there are other more important things, chose to not show up. News Talk 1130 WISN Friday afternoon show. Jerry Vaughn hosting this week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for getting your Labor Day weekend started with me. I do appreciate that. Um, I bet you're anxious to hear the keyword in the iHeartRadio Music Festival flyaway contest. You shall hear it shortly after I blather on. I, I forgot to make a point in the in the previous topic talking about some teachers stepped up during COVID, some did not. What's the difference between the two? And and what about the overall level of accountability of our public education system? I'm asking myself whether or not the Republicans in this election cycle are doing enough to rally parents. The most powerful grassroots political movement in America over the last 18 months has been the Mommy Warrior movement. I don't think it's close. I think it's absolutely every bit as powerful in 2020 21 as the Tea Party was in 2010. I, I, I know there's daddy warriors too. Mommy warrior just sounds better, so I'm going to call it the mommy warrior movement. That movement started when parents took a peek over the shoulders of their kids during home-based virtual learning dictated by COVID. And what did the parents see? They saw gender theory. Critical race theory, the LGBTQ political agenda, and overall liberal political indoctrination being presented to their kids somehow as, quote, education, unquote. And when parents went to school board meetings to complain about it, the National Association of School Boards asked the Department of Justice to label those parents as domestic terrorists. Domestic terrorists for going to school, a school board, who's supposed to work for them and represent their interests, and complain about the tone and substance of what was being taught to their kids in public schools. When Virginia gubernatorial candidate Terry McAuliffe said that, quote, parents shouldn't decide what's taught in schools, end quote, he said the, the, the liberal quiet part out loud, and he lost his election to Glenn Youngkin. I think it turned exactly at that moment on that statement. He hacked off the parents of school-aged children in Virginia, which was a solidly blue state, and put a Republican, who's, by the way, pursuing some pretty aggressive reforms, put a Republican in the state house, and also flipped, I believe, one house of their legislature, Republican as well. Across the country, in select school districts, liberal school board members have been ousted and conservatives have been seated. These are all, it's true, 
But, 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 don't think for a second that the liberal educational bureaucracy has gone away, and don't think that they have given up their methods and plans to infuse liberal dogma into the minds of students. That's still the objective. Every Republican candidate in America should put this issue at the top, or at least near the top, of their campaign agendas. And that issue is parents ought to take back control of America's schools. Parents need to take back control of America's schools. And these candidates should say, we support parents taking back control of their schools, of the, of the curricula, and we will pass legislation to facilitate that. In Wisconsin, I think it's a perfect, it's a picture-perfect issue for Tim Michaels. He has the advantage, he can remind Wisconsinites that Tony Evers is a lifelong educrat. He's part of the problem. And it's nothing that Tony Evers can say, can weasel out of. For decades, Tony Evers has been part of the educational bureaucracy. Now, certainly, universal school choice would be a huge step in reclaiming our public schools. Whether or not there's the political wind, will, rather, on the conservative side to actually get that done, I have my doubts. I hope so. I would support it a thousand percent. You know, in Wisconsin, do Republicans in the, in the state Senate and the state assembly have the, the will and the spine to do that? I, I don't know the answer to that question. But it's hugely important for this reason. Education is upstream from culture. So education floats down to culture, and culture flows downstream into political ideology. It's that important that the schools be retaken. I'm not so sure the Republicans are making a big enough issue of this. There's a natural constituency there of parents that want more control of their public schools, and Republicans ought to be supportive of that, and they should be talking about it. All right, I promised you the word. Here's the word in the iHeartRadio Music Festival Flyway Contest. The word for this hour is festival. Why do they give me the word that's hard to spell? Festival. F-E-S-T-I-V-A-L. Festival. Text the word FESTIVAL to 200-200. You have until 5.55 Central Daylight Time to get that accomplished. FESTIVAL, F-E-S-T-I-V-A-L. Text it to 200-200 before 55 minutes to the top of the hour. The winner of this hour's prize will get round-trip airfare to two to Las Vegas, two nights a hotel in Vegas, ground transportation, and tickets to both nights of the iHeartRadio Music Festival, plus a $1,000 gift card. Um... Artists that might interest ISN audience, uh, listeners with regard to who's playing at the festival, uh, Sam Smith, Luke Combs, Pat Banatar, and Neil Giraldo. Giraldo? Is that right? Did I say that right? Yeah. Thank you. They're, they're, yeah, and it said in, in, the, in the notes from corporate, you have to say both names. You can't just say Pat Banatar anymore. I guess, that way, I, I, I guess Neil feels somewhat emasculated if... Uh, Great guitar player? Okay, Paul. Uh, Black Eyed Peas. Did I say Lionel Richie? Lionel Richie's going to be there. Uh, so anyway, uh, once again, the word is festival. F-E-S-T-I-V-A-L. Text it to 200-200. You have until 555 to do that. If you enter this contest, you will get a confirmation text and also information. Standard data and message rates apply in this nationwide contest. Final hour of the program forthcoming, 509 News Talk 1130 WISN. 
Third and final hour of the Friday afternoon show here on News Talk 1130. WISN, Jerry Bonin hosting the show. Labor Day weekend uh, coming up here. Long weekend for almost everybody. People work in the service industries don't get long weekends on Labor Day. I feel kind of bad about that for some reason. Paul, I think you should go, like, you know, sub for some waiter or some busboy at some restaurant. Just volunteer. Hey, I'll take it from here, buddy. <laughs> Just a, a nice thing to do. There used to be um, an organization of a, a Jewish organization that on Christmas would take the place of Christians and do their jobs for them if they had to be open. I wish I could remember the, the Jewish organization that did it, but I always found that to be an extraordinarily heartwarming thing to do, to let people be with their families on Christmas um, when um, the holiday was not a special day for those who were practicing Judaism. Anyway... Um, let me stop rambling and get to something a little bit more substantive here. You know, oh, by the way, I should say this. In this middle segment of the program, we'll talk about Joe Biden's divide and conquer speech. He's gotten so much blowback already, he's trying to walk it back. He's trying to walk it back. I never said mega Republicans were a threat to the nation. Oh, you said it right. What do you mean you didn't say it? It's, it's actually literally in the text of the speech. We'll get into that in the uh, second segment of this uh, final hour. You know, a nation of laws cannot stand if the public believes that the law is being inequitably applied, and that's especially true if the inequitable application is due to political bias or driven by political bias. You know, the last time I was on the air, I did a segment about, you know, is it is it somehow unpatriotic to question the intentions of the Department of Justice or the FBI? I made the case, no. I mean, they, they've earned this. I see no rational reason to believe at this particular moment in time that the United States Department of Justice is an impartial law enforcement agency. Just don't believe it. The evidence is overwhelming. Further, I see no rational reason to believe that many officials at the top of the food chain in the Federal Bureau of Investigation are not motivated by political ideology. I'm not talking about you know, the, the special agents that, that are on the streets in, you know, Boise, Idaho, or Des Moines, Iowa, or, or Milwaukee. I'm talking about the people in D.C. who are poli- making policy for the FBI at the highest levels. These are political creatures. In short, I do not trust the DOJ or the FBI right now. I just don't. And I know that I am not alone. Millions and millions of Americans see swampish levels of corruption and deceit. And and I'm, I'm just telling the truth. I'm being candid. That's the way I feel. I'm not trying to tell you that me feeling that way is good for the country. It's not. Take the raid of, of Donald Trump's residence down at Mar-a-Lago. Just, just take that. I mean, come on. 30 armed FBI agents starting that raid in the dark. They would not allow Donald Trump's attorneys to oversee the search. 
Why not? They said they were looking for documents. You would think that the attorneys might be able to help point them out, if nothing else. They No, Paul said they, they turned off the security cameras. The FBI agents asked that the security cameras be turned off and were refused. They didn't turn them off. They wouldn't allow Trump's attorneys to participate or oversee the search. They fought against releasing the actual search warrant, which eventually was released. The affidavit supporting the the warrant, the search warrant, was redacted so heavily by the FBI and the DOJ that basically it was valueless in terms of making a determination of the justification for the warrant. <laughs> this latest one. Have you seen the photos of the documents that are like strewn on the floor of, of Trump's? That is just the most obviously stay. If you think that's how they really found them, you are you're a, you're a stooge because they're staged. The staged photos on Trump's office floor. Come on, it's just. I mean, and then they leak the photos to the media. They leak details of the search to you know liberals in the media. Well, to, to Maggie Haberman at the New York Times, the, the leading liberal in, at that institution. You know, on one hand, the Department of Justice and the FBI is, oh no, no, you can't look at any of our rationale for conducting the search. And then on the other side of it, they're leaking like a sieve. Does that inspire confidence of their impartiality? Is justice blind in this case? No way. And now, the DOJ and the FBI are fighting tooth and nail to prevent a special master to be appointed to review the documents that were taken from from Mar-a-Lago. Why? What do they have to hide? It sure looks like harassment of a political enemy. Doesn't it look that way to you? Where the process is the punishment? And not to mention, the Department of Justice, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the intelligence community have meddled in the last four elections. They're going for a, for a four-bagger here. Molly Hemingway from The Federalist sums this up beautifully. In, in, in about a minute's time, she offers the litany of FBI, DOJ, and intelligence, intelligence community, uh, community meddling in uh, the most recent election cycles. The FBI admitted already that they had fabricated evidence to go get a search warrant to spy on the Trump campaign. They have done very little other than meddle in elections going back to the 2016 election. They meddled in that election in two ways, both by weaponizing Hillary Clinton's bought and paid for Russia collusion hoax, but also by downplaying the problems posed by Hillary Clinton. In 2018, they'd already known for a year that there was nothing to the Russia collusion hoax at best, if they ever believed it. And yet they had that Mueller probe going on and on for years to meddle in that election. In 2020, we just had Mark Zuckerberg admitting that the FBI had told him to suppress information, mm-hmm. and you had all those intelligence agencies, agents falsely claiming that uh, the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation, and now they're meddling in this election, too. I mean, everyone knows that the Democrats control everything in D.C., P- their policies are deeply unpopular, and so they're doing this raid in order to meddle in this election and then also in the subsequent one. This is a disaster for the FBI, and people in D.C. can pretend like the 
these leaks and these court filings are anything different than what we've experienced since they began their war against Trump. But I think most of America says enough is enough and they need to stop. Yeah, I think America is starting to say that. I think Molly Hemingway is exactly right. My bottom line is that you'd have to be naive, you'd have to be a moron or both to believe that the Department of Justice and the FBI are enforcing federal law in a fair, unbiased fashion. The evidence overwhelmingly says otherwise. But that belief, as right as it may be, is not good for the country. That tears the country apart. If there are people, a significant, you know, millions or tens of millions of people who think that the FBI is running a rigged game or the DOJ is running a rigged game, that you're not going to get a fair shake, that's the kind of foundation that revolutions are founded on, unfortunately. 5.30, News Talk 11.30, WISN. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. 5.37, News Talk 11.30, WISN. Labor Day weekend getting underway. Jerry Vaught here hosting the Friday afternoon show. Stephanie Barrichello and the Fox 6 weather experts have turned out this forecast for the immediate future. Tonight, partly cloudy skies. Chance of showers by morning. Uh, lows uh, this evening in the upper 60s. Tonight, uh, tomorrow rather, scattered showers, thunderstorms, plus falling temperatures down to the 60s in the afternoon. But uh, before that cold front moves through, the highs are going to be in the upper 70s. The winds are going to switch from the west to the northeast, and they're going to be kind of brisk from the northeast, 10 to 20 uh, miles per hour. So it's going to be a little chilly. Mostly cloudy on Sunday with highs in the lower 70s, and then Monday sounds quite nice, partly sunny, highs mid-70s. 81 degrees right now. Here at News Talk 1130 WISN. All right, let's talk about Joe, Joe Biden's divide and conquer speech, which is what this was last night. And I'm only going to give this a little time because that's all it deserves. Joe Biden's speech last night, by the way, it, it got so much blowback on calling half the country like a danger to democracy that he's trying to walk it back already. I never called mega Republicans a threat to, to democracy. It's in the text. This, this video company, maybe he, he honestly doesn't remember saying it. It was sort of the same thing as Hillary's deplorables, but, and, but so they had, they had Jill lead him out on the stage. And then, and then she starts to go off stage left and he starts to follow her. No, no, Joe, you're supposed to give the speech here. And then he did, he did the fake handshake with the invisible person again, which is always charming. Um, so anyway, I don't, I don't know. I, I assume that to do a speech that this was an eight o'clock Eastern time speech. Remember, this is Philadelphia that he was probably pretty much jacked up on whatever they needed to, to, to get him on to, um, to, to keep body and soul together because uh, the sun setting, you know, starts to, to, he wants his pudding around 3, 3.30 in the afternoon. So I don't think this thing deserves much attention. And I, I what Joe Biden wants is that everybody gives this a ton of attention because when you're giving this attention, you're not paying any attention to the horrific record that he is had during his, well, how many months has he been in office? It seems like forever. Is it 20 months? Right? Eight, eight, uh, eight and 12, yeah, 20 months. 20, 20 months. Biden's speech last night was strictly political. It was extraordinarily divisive. It was dripping with self-interested hackery. 
he gave America this speech so America would not be thinking about his dismal record. That's just, it's just so obvious. There's there's no you know there's no um, cleverness to this. There's there's no uh, misdirection. This is just basically you know I'm going to give this speech, this inflammatory speech, so that this dominates the conversation for you know a couple of news cycles. And for a couple of news cycles, I won't have to mention that we're going to we're in a recession and that the economy has eight and a half percent inflation. You know, yeah, hundred. Well, we'll get the hundreds laptop and at some other point. The, the whole hunter. Before I get into this speech, I said the whole hunter laptop thing. That will be rolled out by the media at the time they want to get rid of Joe for good. That's Just know that. When it's time for Joe to go, somebody's going to come up to Joe and say, look at Joe, about this running for re-election, if you do, we can't keep the lid on the Hunter story any longer. And if, as you know, there's more stuff in there, you know, about, you know, Hunter being a bag man for the entire family. And, and using, you know, influence peddling to gather wealth, we're not going to be able to sit on it. And not only are you not going to win the election if you get the nomination, some people in your family may go to prison. Is that what you want? And Joe, at age, what, he'll be 81 by then or 80, 81. So this will happen next summer. He'll, you know, there'll be health reasons. Or it's, he'll come up with the, the fall of the sword. It's time to pass the torch to a new generation, kind of a, a Kennedy-esque sort of statement. That'll, that'll be the way this plays out. Just, just watch. So the, the whole point of the speech was so that this was the focus. He's trying to flip the script away from focus on his performance to focusing on this non-existent danger. First of all, there was the optics of the speech. It was set against the front entrance of Independence Hall in Philadelphia. It was bathed in this like dark, almost blood-red lighting with two Marines in the shadows. And by the way, they were being used, I think. You know, it looks like they're guarding the door. In a, in a, it was in, a, in sort of a, a cheesy B-movie kind of way. It was quite dystopian. And the Marines and the shadows. By the way, that's, that's not their fault. They were ordered to stand there. They're just doing their job. But it just looked horrible. It looked ominous. It looked, like I said, dystopian. It looked angry. It looked kind of a little un-American, if, if you will. Um Chadwick Moore, who uh, is a contributor at uh, Outspoken.com and does a lot of stuff on the Fox News Channel, he was on Tucker Carlson's show last night, and I think he uh, he summarized the optics pretty well. It was truly horrifying, and as you sort of alluded to before, the staging itself was the stuff of tyrants. You had the Marines standing at attention behind him with Independence Hall bathed in blood-red lights, and, uh, you know, this... Here he comes, you know, Mr. Unity, President Unity, to the city of brotherly love to tell Americans that after neighbors are uh, irredeemable, dangerous extremists. Uh, but you're right to say this is really dangerous, scary stuff, and it's almost like he's preparing the nation to be seen by their own government as enemies. I would love to know, he said MAGA, I believe, about 
12 times in the first 10 minutes of the speech. Who are these non-MAGA Republicans? That's what I'm curious to know. What right. do they look like? Who are the Republicans that uh, are the opposition that Joe, uh, Joe Biden likes? Uh, that would be really interesting to see because uh, if we missed any of them, I think they'll be heading the way of Liz Cheney and that guy who cries a lot. <laughs> that was a reference to Adam Kinzinger from Illinois. He blubbered during the hearings. Remember that? That's what a disgrace that guy is. Anyway, so there was the optics. The optics were a disaster. Then there was the divisive nature, the divisiveness of, of the actual text of the speech. Biden claimed that mega GOP, GOPers, mega Republicans, I'm one of them. Paul, are you one? Absolutely. Now, I, don't, I wear it like a badge of honor. He claimed that the, the, the MAGA Republicans, you know, 75 million of us, 75 million Americans, thumbed their noses at the rule of law. It's just an absolutely absurd claim to make. Play Biden. American democracy only works only if we choose to respect the rule of law and the institutions that were set up in this chamber behind me. Only if we respect our legitimate political differences. I will not stand by and watch. I will not the will of the American people be overturned by wild conspiracy theories and baseless evidence-free claims of fraud. I will not stand by and watch elections in this country stolen by people who simply refuse to accept that they lost. <laughs> what is he talking about? <laughs> what is he talking about? What election in America has been overturned and stolen? Joe, name the election you're, you're, you're referencing. There isn't one. No, it's, yeah, it's, it's Joe Biden under the impression he's not president. Maybe. Who knows? I don't know what he thinks. No, that's just Joe Biden building a straw man. Yeah, that's, that's a straw man argument. We're going to fight against the people that won't accept the results of elections and try to steal our elections. Well, nobody's stolen anything. His, 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 his wrinkled rear end is sitting in the Oval Office. And the, the, the Joe Biden talking about respecting the rule of law, spare me. Okay, who's been lying to FISA courts? Who's suppressing information about Hunter's laptop on social media with the bogus claim that it's Russian disinformation? Who's letting rioters burn down cities night after night after night in 2020 and 2021? I don't think those are my fellow megaites that were allowing that. Those are Joe's political allies. I mean, who's obeying the rule of law? You know, the, the people in Madison who are ripping down statues and throwing them in the lake? Yeah, those, those seem like a good rule of law, people. The people that were burning Kenosha to the ground? Were they, were they the, 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 you know, the anti-rule of law megaites? No, the lefties. Here's the point. Joe wants to divide Americans in the hope that he can conquer. That's what that divisiveness is all about. Also, the complete lack of, of inspiration. Great leaders inspire people. Leaders like Washington and Lincoln and Churchill. These are men of principle, and sticking to their principle in difficult times was an inspirational example. And people followed them. Some people would say Donald Trump is an inspirational figure. Joe Biden couldn't. Joe Biden couldn't inspire 
a starving dog to eat a three-pound steak. I don't, I don't think so. This is all about distraction. Joe Biden and the Democrats don't want the 2022 midterms to be a referendum on his then 22 months in office. Because if it is, you'll have to consider the following. Here's what's been going on during Joe's watch. The, the, there was a raid on the home of his top political opponent, and he labeled half the country as extremists. He targeted parents as domestic terrorists. He let 13 United States service members die from his botched Afghanistan withdrawal and simply stared at his watch as the caskets returned home. He stayed silent as his supporters threatened Supreme Court justices and their families to overturn a ruling. He fired working-class citizens and U.S. soldiers for refusing to comply with his vaccine mandate. He blamed the entire pandemic on unvaccinated Americans. He financially ruined Americans through the inflation he's caused. He's intentionally opened our southern border and left our communities defenseless against a wave of violence and drugs, and he ignored the baby formula crisis as desperate parents struggled to feed their infants, but founding, but uh, they found only empty shells. That's the Biden legacy. That's what he doesn't want you to think about when you go to the polls. That's what he wants you to think about anything but those things that I just ticked off there. Joe Biden wants you to vote on anything but his record, and he's perfectly willing. And this this is the, the despicable part. He is perfectly willing to vilify half of America, 75 million voters, the 75 million who want to make America great again. I said I'm a, I'm a proud MAGA guy. Paul raised his hand. When, Are you a MAGA guy? Are you a MAGAite? I decided, you know, what is a mega? Make America great. What is a mega? What does a mega believe? I have now developed the, do- the dozen declarations of megaites. See if these ring true to you, Paul. The principles of the megaites. We believe in self-sufficiency, that we should work hard and use the gifts that God gave us to make our own way in the world. We believe in small government that's not intrusive in our lives. We believe in traditional education, not woke indoctrination. We want our kids to read, write, math, technological skills, all the things they need so that they can take advantage of the gifts that God gave them. We are strong supporters of the First Amendment, both speech, freedom of speech, and freedom of religion. We strongly support the Second Amendment because we can see what happens when government gets out of control. We believe that the United States should have the strongest military in the world so that we might keep the peace from a position of strength. We believe in law and order, and we believe that the justice system should have the following in priorities. The priorities are in order. Safety, public safety first. That's the first priority of the justice system. The second is deterrence, of keeping people from committing crimes by threatening punishment. And the third level is rehabilitation. Let people try to pay their debt to society and become better people. We believe that the power of the government should be wielded evenly and fairly. We believe in free and fair elections. We believe that our borders should actually be borders, secure. Without borders, we have no nation. We believe in traditional American values and mores. And we believe that the best and most powerful way of achieving prosperity is through capitalism and free markets. Twelve tenants. Did I hit them all? Wouldn't I love to hear a president say that? 
I've got it in my notes. I can send it to whoever. But that's what it is. That's what those of us who believe that we need to make America great again, those are the principles in which we believe. And if you are opposed to those, then we have a political difference. I don't see any right-minded American saying that any of those things are bad. We have one controversy left to cover before the end of the show. Five fifty-seven News Talk eleven thirty WISN final segment of this edition of the Friday afternoon show. Jerry Bont with you here. Another high school football season, Paul, is underway here in the state of Wisconsin. So that means that somebody is going to be oh so offended by some high school outstate someplace that still has a team nickname related to Native Americans. I know that Mark Belling talked about this a little bit yesterday. He talked about. The article that was I, I found in the Green Bay Press Gazette that I think has been spread to all the Gannett newspapers in the state, uh, with regard to uh, the characterization being made that the um, the Indian chief logo that McGuanagoe High School uses was somehow cartoonish. And Mark's point was it, it was a pretty fair, respectful depiction of of a male you know, older Indian chief. And I looked closely at it, and I think Mark's characterization of it is is pretty accurate. But I want to get to a different element of this. The situation that we're talking about, and the one that Mark talked about yesterday, the one I'm about to talk about, getting statewide attention, and it has the usual elements of this. You know, the culture-based offense and charges of racial insensitivity And in this story, add one more element, a flood of tears. Let me just briefly quote from this article that I got from uh, the Green Bay Press Gazette.com, Dateline McGuanago. As the high school sports season ramps up, Tammy Swierzynski, I believe is the way you pronounce her name, Swierzynski, I'll apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. Anyway, she was excited to to watch her son play football against the team he had not previously uh, met just west of Milwaukee, but she was shocked and dismayed to find out that the team still uses a race-based mascot. I asked my husband, quote, what year is this, end quote. She said, quote, I had no idea that this was still going on, end quote. Swarsinski's Sun Prairie Area School District, just northeast of Madison, had split into two teams this year and was the first time her son, a sophomore, had played against McGuanago. She is an enrolled citizen of the United Nation and couldn't understand why the team would purport to represent her people with a cartoonist indigenous chief in full feathered headdress. Uh, I would object with the characterization as car- of cartoonish as Mark did yesterday. I don't, I don't think it was disrespectful, the uh, char- character- characterization at all. Swarzynski said the team's signage was everywhere including across the field, and every time the announcer would say Indians over the public address system, the crowd would cheer. She said, quote, Some friends on Facebook don't know why Indian is a bad word. In my opinion, it's a derogatory word because people have used it in a derogatory way. We're not even Indian. We're not from India. But with them using a chief in a headdress, they were obviously referring to us. Article goes on. The governments of every indigenous nation in Wisconsin oppose the use of such race-based mascots and logos, arguing they cause harmful stereotypes, as state officials are reminded every year during the State of the Tribes address. 
Yet more than two dozen school districts in Wisconsin still use indigenous-based mascots and logos, that according to the Wisconsin Indian Education Association. The association still uses the term Indian in its title because some indigenous individuals and organizations have taken to owning the word to decrease some of the negative connotations. I am now going to give you a laundry list of the schools, the school districts in Wisconsin that still have some sort of Native American-related uh, team nickname. Baldwin-Woodville, the Blackhawks, the Belmont Braves, the Berlin Indians, the Bigfoot Chiefs, the Blackhawk Warriors, the Cornell Chiefs, the Fort Atkinson Blackhawks, the Greenwood Indians, the Kewaskum Indians, the Lake Holcomb Chieftains, the Lancaster Flying Arrows. Flying Arrows, is that Native American? Could just be archery, I don't know, maybe. The Mishicot Indians, the Mosinee Indians, the Maguanago Indians, the Muskego Warriors, the Osceola Chieftains, the Ozaki Warriors, the, the Potosi Chieftains, the Prairie Duchene Blackhawks, the Rib Lake Redmen, the Riverdale Chieftains, the Seneca Indians, the Shyocton Chiefs, the Stockbridge Indians, the Tomahawk Hatchets, well, let me stop there. If you're Tomahawk, right? Tomahawk hatchets. You got to be the hatchets if you're a Tomahawk. I mean, is, 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 there, is, there, is there anything more, I mean, with regard to a, 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 an instrument, anything more related to Native Americanism than a Tomahawk? The name of the, the town is Tomahawk. The, the, now, this one is surprising. The Wanakee Warriors. Why is it surprising that Wanakee? Wanakee is a very ritzy suburb of Madison, and you'd think that the, that the, the the woke elements of um, of you know Greater Dane County would have already the, the forces that be would have already had that change, but I guess not. The Wanakee Warriors and the Wisconsin Dells Chiefs. The experience of non-indigenous-based school teams claiming to represent indigenous people in a cartoonish manner started to weigh on Swarzynski at the game. She said, quote, I sat there as long as I could. I had sunglasses on, and I started bawling in the middle of the bleachers. I didn't know what to do, so I left. She was brought to tears. With all due respect, I think that is a bit of an overreaction. And that Native Americans who are offended by this are actually in the minority of members of their own race. A Washington Post poll from several years ago showed nearly 9 in 10 Native Americans as not being offended by Indian nicknames. And they polled well in excess of 10,000 Native Americans to get those results. This wasn't, you know, some poll of 400 Native Americans weighted by for demographics. This was a major, large poll. But I want to make a bigger point. Here's the real reason that Native Americans should not be offended by nicknames that deal with American Native American imagery or people. Schools pick nicknames for their sports teams based on honor, not derision. If you're a school district, you'd never pick a nickname that humiliates your team. It's not the Kewaskum scumbags. It's not the McGuanagall pus buckets. 
There is certain imagery that is incorporated in Native American culture that's quite positive and and the, the type of imagery that a sports team would want to layer over itself. Images of, of courage and strength and honor. The bottom line is that schools that use Native American team nicknames reflect something positive because you'd never label yourself with something that you think is a negative, right? All these, you know, this sliver of a minority of, of Native Americans who are offended by Indian, you know, Native American related nicknames, I think miss the point that the teams that use these nicknames are not trying to make fun of themselves. They're trying to come up with a, with a team image that they think is positive. The Native Americans would be proud of this, not upset by it. You know, Paul, when I was, um, uh, I had that, that um, partners in that um, lake house up north, and I can't remember what community it was in, but if you took up, we went up the back, back way. Now, at the time, I was my same height, about 5'11 and a half, but I weighed about 275 instead of 210. I was fat. And we, we passed this bar, and I forget exactly what little town it was in, but it was called Fatso's. Fatso's. Did I go there on the steps and weep? Oh, you're so hurtful. It's derogatory. You you have no idea how the word fatso has wounded me. No, I, I did the right thing. I lost like 70 pounds and never went into fatso's. I bet you they, I bet you the food was good. It was one of those little small town like bar and grills where you know the food's great. You know, the, 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 there's one or there's one two rivers. Maybe that's where it was. I don't know. It was on the way up to Marinette County someplace. All right. That'll do it. Uh, 606, News Talk 1130, WISN. We have news and Sean Hannity uh, coming up. Have a great, safe Labor Day weekend, everybody. We'll convene again next week. Bye.